are perhaps uh, new or unfamiliar, um, I want to begin by reminding us uh, what we mean uh, when we talk of Advent. And what does it mean when we talk about the Advent season? You see, what we're really talking about when we talk about this season, the Christmas season, the Advent season, is a season of anticipation. Anticipation surrounding the birth of the Messiah. Promised for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, the one who would come to rescue humanity from our sin. The one talked about by the prophets, as we will see from John 1 this morning, who would act for God's people, bringing restoration, lifting them, us, you and I, out of our trouble and sorrow. And so we're talking about this anticipation for this, of this moment, and of this season. And there is this season of anticipation as we look here to the text due to God's people waiting and waiting, and waiting, and, and waiting, right? Watching. <coughs> Throughout the Old Testament, we read of the sin of God's people and the depravity of the human heart, wickedness and evil. And yet, the biblical story remains. God is faithful, right? God is faithful. He, he delivers and he disciplines his people, Leading and, and guiding them, right? Instructing them and, and preserving them in order to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. We come into the New Testament, we come into the Gospel of John on the heels of 400 years of silence, anticipation, building and building and building. In fact, when we think about what Advent means, an illustration that might be most helpful in assisting our understanding is that of like a, a rubber band, right? Like we're familiar with this, right? Um, and they're stretchy, depending on how big they are is how stretchy they are. Um, and uh, what we're really talking about in this season of Advent is the anticipation that builds as, as tension is brought, right? Like you, you stretch it and stretch it, and stretch it, and there's this anticipation, right? It's building. The tension becomes greater, and you're just, you're looking, and you're waiting as to what will happen next. And then, there's a sense of relief, right? As that which has been looked forward to is indeed realized, here in John chapter 1, we, we observe a narrative in which relief is being realized, only it comes in a most unorthodox form, a baby. Right From the middle of nowhere, ushered into the world in a setting absent of, of pomp. Right, the, the king of creation born under the most humbling of circumstances. And the irony is this, that, that none of this is coincidental. There's a, there's a pattern that is being established here as we seek to, to bridge the gap between the, the Old Testament and the New, the expectation and its realization. There's a pattern. Right, that's, that's being established here that sets the stage for our understanding 
of the ministry of Christ. There's a, there's a pattern that's being established here through the incarnation that shapes our understanding of the death of Christ and the purpose of it all. So if Advent draws us into the anticipation of the coming of the Christ, and we assert that Jesus is the Christ, thus bringing it into our anticipation, why do we continue to observe Advent? Do you understand the question? Right? If, we're, if we're looking from an Old Testament perspective and we're recognizing the promise of the coming one who would save and rescue and bring forgiveness and reconciliation, and we assert that Christ Jesus is indeed he, then why now do we continue to observe and recognize this Advent season? First off, that's a great question, if that's one that you're asking. If you weren't asking that question, then perhaps now you're going, that really is a great question. Like, why do we continue to observe? It's a great question with a really simple answer. It's because the Bible is not a story of of one advent, but it's the story of two. Right? Not not one coming, but, but two comings. Right? Our assertion based on God's perfect word is that Christ has come. Christ Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. Right? That he lived a, a perfect life, right? satisfying the righteous instruction of the Lord. As you and I were intended to satisfy the righteous instruction of the Lord, only we fail. He satisfies the law of the Lord, exercising perfect obedience before giving himself in order that his righteousness might be credited to our account as we look upon him with faith, confessing our sin. Our assertion based on God's perfect word is that the Messiah has come in the person of Christ, that he gave himself. Dying, the ultimate sacrifice, before rising back to life, appearing, conversating, and then ascending back to the right hand of the Father. Our assertion, based on God's perfect word, is that the Christ has come, and that he is coming. So, you and I continue to observe, along with the church, universal, Right? In all places this morning, Advent, this next season of anticipation, as we look to Christ longing for his return. And what we find is a very similar narrative that the anticipation just builds. Right? It builds and it builds and it builds in the same way that we observe a building in the Old Testament. The church now waits with eager anticipation the return of our king. Through the first 42 verses of John 1, we have discussed three of the four Advent themes. You likely know them by now as we've talked about them a number of times this morning. Hope, peace, and joy. We have established our need for hope as a result of sin's effects on us and sin's effects in us. 
Our lack of peace with God and with others, oftentimes within our own persons, and our desire for joy, deep, soul-satisfying joy. These are the things that we've talked about over the past few weeks. And if you want to go back and listen to those, you are free to do so online. Each week, the message is the same. In Christ and his resurrection is found the answer to our most pertinent need and our deepest longings. This morning, we continue down this line as we close out our time in John 1 by exploring the theme of love from verses 43 through 51, as Audrey read for us. John further unpacks the early days of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Think about where we've been. The Word has become flesh. We have been introduced to John, the baptizer, who affirms the person and nature of Jesus and his superiority. Along with multiple points of application, including rest in Christ and an intentional evangelistic effort from John's original audience of Jew and Greek, to you and I, comprehension is not difficult, but application is killing us. Within this morning's passage, we see an act of love and a climactic statement. And so what idea do you and I need to hold on to as we seek to draw out from this passage a number of observations this morning? Well, here it is. This is what I want you to hold to. God's love through the person of Christ results in rescue and a life committed to mission. Let me say that one more time. That that God's love through the person of Christ results in rescue and a life committed to mission. A few observations that we are going to uh, to draw out from this passage. Is everybody still with me? Yes, awesome. Uh, Are as follows. From these verses, we want to understand the love of God and the call of Christ. Understanding from verses 43 through 51 of John 1, the love of God and the call of Christ. Our second observation is this, understanding the love of God through spirit empowerment. Understanding the love of God through the call or in the call of Christ. Number two, understanding the love of God through the spirit's empowerment. So let's begin, because we don't have... All day, right? Observation number one, understanding the love of God in the call of Christ. Look with me at verse 43. John writes, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now here's what we want to do over the next few minutes. We want to draw out the meaning. What is Christ instructing Philip toward. What does it mean to to follow after Jesus? This is what we're going to be be talking about, okay? And so if you're a note taker, this would be a great thing to to make a a sub point of, right? Consideration of the, the call to follow after Christ. What does this mean and what does it look like? In verses 43 and 44, we read two words that would become central from the ministry of Jesus and his interaction with his creation. 
and later, as we will see from Philip, from his people by way of their interaction in the world. We see in verses 43 and 44 a call that demands a response. And what is the call? Well, it's, it's simple. Two words, right? Follow me. That's the call, but what in the world does that mean? Well, let's begin here, all right? Let's begin on the most, on the most basic of, of, of levels, right? It involves, on some level, this call, a, a recognition of one's own sin and separation from God. Let me say that one more time. It involves this call on some level, a recognition of one's sin and separation from God. And so there's this concession, right, of of who we are. There's this realization of who we are that draws us into deeper consideration of our great need. It explains to us and for us Feelings and emotions that we as a broken people are all too familiar with. Displays for us, by way of our concession to this statement, a realization of our separation from God and sets us in a perfect place to recognize the call of Christ as a call to forgiveness. So let's, let's step back for just a moment, and let's, let's replay what we just said. Okay, it, it involves understanding this call on some level, a recognition of one's own sin and a separation from God. Our sin and its subsequent result, which is this, this separation from God. Now, what do you mean by on some level? Well, because it's a place that each one of us in this room, regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, it's a place that we are able to to connect, right? Because as we um, are confronted, perhaps for the first time, with the good news and the hope of the gospel, that is what God has done for us in Christ, we see our great need for the very first time. By grace, our eyes are opened, and we recognize our rebellion. Now, what happens over subsequent years is not a minimizing of the understanding of our rebellion. We never progress on in holiness and go, wow, I thought five years ago that I was much more rebellious than I currently am. In fact, it works the opposite way. Right? As we, as we move forward, as we are brought from one degree of, of holiness to the next, there is this increased realization of our sin. Right? Does that make sense? Like there's a, there's a recognition, like there's a recognition um, on, on, on my, my part. Okay, let's just make this personal for just a moment, right? Um, I, I recognize my sin and separation to a greater degree now than I did five years ago. That's a, that's a byproduct, right? It's a, it's a result of time spent in the Word, intimacy with God, growing in a deeper understanding of His character and what He has done, what the gospel means, right? Like, I am, I am more aware today of my sin. I am more disgusted by my sin today than I was five years ago. I am more disgusted by my sin today than I was five months ago. I am more disgusted by my sin today than I was five weeks ago. 
And as we come into, into John 1 this morning, and I'm speaking the gospel to myself and to you, like I am more reminded and disgusted of my sin now than I was five minutes ago. That's the way that it works. Do we get that? We we grow in an understanding of of who God is and what he has done. And thus, there is this progression. We are disgusted by our sin. And so there's a recognition of one's sin, regardless of where we find ourselves on the spectrum, and our subsequent separation from God. By its very nature, it is an admittance of guilt. It is a confession of sin. It's it's an acknowledgement of the superiority of Jesus, his humanity and his divinity. There is the theological consideration followed by practical application. What does all that we just said about this idea of following after Jesus and what is required in order to do so, a recognition of and a disgust of our sin, a turning from it and looking to Christ. What does that mean? Not so much theologically, we've just spent 10 minutes talking about that, but what does it mean practically? John Stott explains like this. He says, in the days when Jesus lived among men on earth, this meant, this call to follow after me, a literal abandonment of home and work. A literal. We're not so figurative here. We're talking like a a literal abandonment. Simon and Andrew, two others called by Jesus in like fashion, left their nets and followed him. James and John left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Matthew, who heard Christ's call while he was at work, left everything and rose and followed him. The call to follow Christ was understood to be a call to leave behind all lesser Loyalties. One's expectation for the now, as well as their aspirations for the future. Well, I thought this is what it was to look like, to, to live life, right? I thought this was, this was my expectation. These were my aspirations. To follow Jesus is to surrender those things, right? It's to, it's to lay those things aside in submission to the king. It was understood to be a call that resulted with unquestioned, uncontested loyalty, a drastic step, yet one that was willing to be made because it came from the mouth of a just and loving God. This call is, as all good things, a gift from God. Did you catch that? Right? The call to follow me is a gift from God, a God who, who loves us, evidenced by his willingness to sacrifice for our salvation. This was historically the understood meaning of the call to follow after Jesus. It was to see one's condition and confess Christ Jesus 
as the Messiah capable of taking away sin. This was the way that it was understood. And so the question that you and I are left asking this morning is this. If that was the call, well, then has the call changed? I mean, after all, think about the world that we, that we live in. We are 2,000 years removed from the time of Christ and the birth of the church, right? We are certainly more, like, progressive, right? That's the word. We're more open to interpretation and, and, and exploration, Are we really sure that the call to follow after Christ in this manner remains coupled with the call to to leave behind, forsaking the things in our lives that fall under the supremacy of Christ? And the answer is yes. Right? Yes, we are sure that the call remains the same. No, it has not changed. In fact, quite the opposite. Not only is it not a call that has changed, very much remaining a call that that looks exactly as we observe here from John 1 verse 43, but it's a call that extends out over all of creation. It's It's a call that demands a response from, from every tribe, and each of her members, right? regardless of age or race, regardless of socioeconomic status or gender, the call to follow Jesus remains. Look to Christ. Right? Believe in Christ. Cling to Christ. It's the call of Jesus in verse 43 of John chapter 1 to Philip. It's the call from God through the writer John, this 85 AD audience, and to you and I as we sit here today. The call to follow and the call to forsake remain coupled. Right? To, to follow Jesus is to turn from sin and to toward, turn toward him. In addition, there is an undeniable connection with the loving call of Christ to repentance and an individual's moving toward a path of obedience as a result. So here's what we've said thus far, because we're about to make a a slight shift, right? There's this, this recognition, right, by way of the call of Christ of our condition and need. Now, if that's true... Right, And there is such consequence by way of our natural condition that is eternal separation from God, then it is indeed loving that Christ Jesus would extend the call to follow after him. What does it look like as, as God's people begin to consider the path of obedience that flows from this call and our submission to his superiority? Our submission to the superiority of Christ, what does it look like for God's people to to now live this, right? To live in light of this, to live out this. Again, John Stott writes, Repentance is a definitive turn from every thought, word, deed, and habit which is known to be wrong. 
So let's connect with that for just a moment, right? Let's, let's consider that. In our own lives, in our, in our own hearts, what, is that, what does that struggle look like? Right? What, is, what does that look like to, to know, to have in our minds right, this, this understanding of, of that which works in direct opposition of the instruction of the Lord? Right? What does it look like to, to turn from that? Do we see how this call is coupled, how the call demands a specific response? And this indeed is it. Stott writes, it is not sufficient to feel pangs of remorse or to make some kind of apology to God. Right? So we sit here and we go, eee, like, ouch. That, like, that one hits, right? Like, kind of like Battleship, right? Like, A15. Oh, gosh. Right? Like, we, we feel it, perhaps. But is that sufficient? Is it sufficient to simply feel? Well, no, it's, it's not. It's not sufficient to feel the pangs of remorse or to make some kind of apology to God. Fundamentally, repentance is a matter neither of emotion nor of speech. It is an inward change of mind and attitude towards sin, which leads to a change of behavior. We must indeed see the bitterness of our sin in order to savor the sweetness of Christ. There can be no compromise here. Practically, there may be sins in our lives in which we do not think we ever could renounce. But we must be willing to let them go as we cry to God for deliverance from them. If you are in doubt regarding what is right and what is wrong, what must go and what may be retained, Do not be too greatly influenced by the customs and conventions of Christians that you may know, but instead go by the clear teaching of the Bible and the prompting of your conscience. And Christ will gradually lead you further along the path of righteousness. When he puts his finger on anything, give it up. It may be some association or recreation, some literature we read, or some attitude of pride, jealousy, resentment, or an unforgiving spirit that we possess. Right? We, we ask now, uh, we step back and we ask the Lord to, by the power of His Spirit, reveal sin in our lives and in our hearts. Right? That we might be, we might be broken over it, right? That we might, we might desire that it indeed would be slain in our lives in order that we might grow in intimacy with Christ. That is the desire. That is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. As sinners, Christ calls us to follow. As saints, Christ calls us to follow. I want to be real honest for a minute, Okay? And I'm going to begin with like my own personal position, but then I'm going to fall back and I'm going to say, but we feel this way because God feels this way, okay? So don't like turn off the radio before I get to the second part. Right, like as the pastor of this church, like I am not super interested as to whether or not you like say you follow after Jesus. Like we live in the Bible Belt, okay? Like, I mean, 
that may be up for some debate among some of us. But like we live in a culture in which there is oftentimes this confession totally absent of repentance and true gospel transformation. Like I'm not, I'm not interested, right? Like that must be present. Like you must say, yes, indeed I am like following after Christ. But if that is your confession absent of any type of transformation, then we have major issues here, right? Like the the call to follow after Christ, one's submission to this call, one's recognition of sin, right? One's savoring of Christ results in a life that is transformed. I am not interested in that because God is not interested in that, okay? So I can make that statement and you can make that statement, right? Like, I can count on both hands, like, the number of people that I encounter in any given week or month that say to me, like, yeah, like, I'm a Christian, right? And I'm going, like, brother, no. <laughs> like, no, you're not. But there's, there's no, no evidence of what it looks like to truly follow after Christ that is being displayed in and through your life. The call to follow Jesus is a call to to come to him. And as a result, to to leave behind certain things. Placing all things under the subjection of his power and his instruction for how they ought to be used and leveraged for his glory. Our relationships, our marriages. Do we just leave our spouses? No, that is insane, right? Right? But we place our marriages under the subjection of Christ and his desire for them. Right? Our, 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 our jobs, our friendships, our hobbies, right? recreational activities that we participate in. Like these are all subject to Christ. So if we do inventory this morning, perhaps there are some you're going, man, this particular area of my life is currently not placed under the subjection of the lordship of Jesus. And therefore, there has to be like a reorientation, like there has to be this, this, this transformation that takes place, or there has to be this altogether separation that results. The call to follow Jesus is a call to, to come to him, to learn from him, to obey him, and to identify with him. A response made possible by him and by him alone. So what does the Bible say about the human response to this call? We haven't even got to the response yet and how we do it. We understand what it looks like. Right? I'm grasping that, but how in the world? Like, how do, I, how do I begin to do this? What does the Bible say about, about the human response? A response observable in Philip and also in Nathaniel, which we are going to talk about um, in just a few minutes. But I want us to transition, right? We're, we're transitioning out of this, this first observation and understanding of the love of God and the call of Christ into our second observation, understanding the love of God through spirit empowerment. Understanding the love of God through the spirit's empowerment. First, an observable uh, repentance, 
And then second, a missional engagement. So here's two subcategories for you. Observable repentance and missional engagement. So let's, let's consider first observable repentance. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul writes that we are darkened in our understanding. He writes that we are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us, because of the hardness of our heart. In John 1, 1, the beloved disciple introduces his readers to the word of God who enters into the world. Again, our assertion from John 1, 45 through 46 is that it is the love of God that produces a work of God to open rebellious eyes to his glory and our salvation, the person of Christ. Let me say that one more time. From John 1, 45 through 46, we believe, based on what God's word says here, that it is indeed the love of God that produces a work of God to open rebellious eyes in connection with Ephesians chapter 4 to his glory and our salvation, which is the person of Christ. From this scene, we can trace the work of God to give spiritual eyes to the blind. Observable in Philip. Look with me at verse 45. Having been uh, called to follow Jesus, Philip went and found Nathanael. Verse 45. And he said to him, we have found him. You know how we talk about tone, like tone of text? When there's this consideration of what we have just talked about, when that theological becomes practical, I think that a a way that we might best read this passage that's going to communicate the excitement, the heart, the realization is is something like this. We have have found him. We, We have found him of whom Moses... In the law, and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? To which Philip's response, beautiful. Come and see. Just, just come and see. Philip's message is this. Simple, right? Here it is. He is here. He has come. The one that Moses and the law and the prophets spoke of. Philip proclaims, we have found him. Now what does this mean? And how does this draw out for us and expose us to God's great Love and generosity extended to sinners. What does it mean to find Jesus? I liken it to uh, a game that Judah, our two-and-a-half-year-old, and I play at home. Right now, Judah is a big fan of a little game called hide-and-seek, right? Only he really prefers to be like all-time seeker, and he has dubbed me all-time hider. And as he roams the house, comes upon my presence, he says, I found you. <coughs> Some of you are familiar with this, right? 
I think that the Bible likens the sight that enables us to see and find Jesus to a similar experience that Judah and I enjoy as we play this game in our home. Let's be super clear. Judah is is two and a half, (laughs) right? Like I can almost hide in plain sight and he will not find me. (laughs) Right? If Judah finds me, it's because I desire to be found. Right? It's because I wave my arm from out behind the door. Or stick my leg from out and underneath the, the curtains. Right, it's because I, I stomp on the floor or, or knock on the door, rattling the doorknob. Philip's sight, right, our sight, is dependent. It's dependent on an act of love and a supernatural work. We see from verses 45 and 46 a loving father who is faithful, who is faithful to enlighten darkened eyes to see. I want us to look at this truth from two positions and consider how it, uh, how it shapes or ought to shape our hearts and even our prayers but if you're here this morning and you are, you are not a Christian and this is the first exposure that you have had to the hope of the gospel and your great need, then your statement right, right now to yourself might look something like this. God, open my eyes to see what I am currently blind to. Right? Open, my, open my eyes to, to observe your character and to respond appropriately. Show me my need. Show me my desperation. Show me my sin. That I might indeed see and observe the sweetness of Christ. For the believer, we say here, now, Right? Within, our, within our souls, God, open my eyes. Right? Open my eyes to see what I am currently blind to. Your character and the appropriate response. Right? Having, having been made to see the love of God, we confess our need daily looking to the Lord. To show us areas within ourselves in need of being exposed to the light of Christ. To to show us opportunities for gospel influence and gospel advancement. To show us things that we should be upset about. And ask God to, to give us clarity and boldness to speak out injustice in our in our world. And in our communities, we see from verses 45 and 46, a loving father who is faithful, a loving father who is faithful to enlighten darkened eyes to see while softening hard hearts to respond to the love of Christ, calling others to love Christ. Which leads us into our second observation. But let's make sure that we understood what we just said. 
right? We understand the call to follow, but let's understand the love of God as we are, as his people, made able to submit ourselves to this call, right? It's a, it's a display of love. It is a gift from God that we are most thankful for, that leads us as his people to a posture of humility and celebration in light of who he is and what he has done for us. Let's venture into sub-point two, okay? Here we go. Missional engagement. Missional engagement from this morning's passage from John 1, the love of God in the transformation of his people. Look with me at verse 45 for context's sake. Let's read 45 and 46 before we venture into 47. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote in accordance with the word of God, the fulfillment of his prophecy in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Wait, I'm not sure, right? Can anything good come out of Sticktown, Nazareth? To which Philip said to him, Come and, and see. Verse 47. We're venture, venturing on, seeing shift. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you, how do you know me? Man, to a deeper level than you could even begin to imagine. <clears throat> Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Right, in our, in our desperation, and in our, and in our separation, in our need, in our rebellion, Christ Jesus sees. Right? He, he, he sees. And as we will observe here, he's faithful to, to receive. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. From verses 45 through 49, we see a clarity in connection with God's word. From verses 45 through 49, we uh, observe a, a love for people that results in a call to people. Right? A, a love for people flowing from a, a heart that has been transformed, a heart that mirrors the heart of God, a heart that we require to be increasingly mirroring the heart of God. They recognize the love that we have received and as a result calls others into this same position. The call of repentance, man, it can be, it can be one that we as God's people oftentimes struggle with, especially in a culture, right, that is, is constantly communicating this, this message, right, that is, so, that is so contrary to what God's word so clearly says. Listen to what Trevin Wax has to say about this call and what it means. The call to repentance is the call to return home. Come and see Jesus, right? Re return home. There's a recognition that the world is not as it ought to be and we are not where we ought to be. 
as a result of, of sin's stain on creation. Come home. It's the call to be refreshed by our tears. It is the call to be cleansed from all our guilty stains. We need the scalpel of the Spirit to do surgery on our diseased hearts so that we can be restored to spiritual health. There's this, there's this recognition by way of, of clarity that the Spirit gives to us, that God produces in us of our need, that we are sick and desperate and dead, more needy than we can even begin to comprehend. And at the same time, more loved than we can even begin to comprehend. The call to see Christ is a call to repentance. And a call to repentance, as we observe here from Christ, is the greatest act of love imaginable. This is the realization that we have been so lovingly brought into. This is the realization that we now lovingly call others into. The message of the Christian is the message of Christ from verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The work of God through the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the Son. In Christ, we see a Savior. We see a Savior acting as the ladder from heaven to earth, the exalted Son who climbs down to us because of our inability and our unwillingness to climb up to Him. This is the message of the gospel, right? That that God has come down, displaying for us our neediness and his love. He took on humble flesh, identifying and, and experiencing human struggle and the weight of sin on the cross so that we could come into the presence of God. Jesus calls us to follow, talks about what that means and what that looks like. Where are we following him to? I don't know about you, but I oftentimes like to know where I'm going before I get on the road. We are following Jesus toward the throne room of the Heavenly Father who gave to a a broken world his Son, in order to redeem us, in order to bring us into his presence. And as a result, we are now a people deeply and significantly impacted, deeply and significantly transformed by the gospel, looking to him and acting in like manner, in a way that is really representative of the response of of Philip, right? Our, our message is this, that our king has come. 
right? This Christmas season, what is the message? Our king has come. What is our message? <coughs> our king has come. But it's not simply that our king has come, right? It's that our, our king is coming. Hope, peace, joy, and love in Christ Jesus. And now through Christ and the strength of the Spirit, as Jesus has come into the world, we likewise go into the world. As Philip announces the advent of Jesus, we announce the advent of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son, the Lamb who takes away our sin. This Christmas season, let us look to and point others to our King and to our Savior. We have a lot to consider as we come to the table this morning. And we come to the table each week as God's people. This is an act, right? This is a meal that is reserved for God's people, those who are following after Jesus. And we come considerate of what we have heard from his word. We we come considerate of God's desired response from his people as he speaks to them and, and enlightens our hearts. And so I ask you, as we come to the table today, how, how do you respond? Right, what are these, these areas of your of your life that are that are currently like existing on the the outskirts, right? Disassociated as you would believe them to be, from the supremacy of Jesus. How do we, how do we fix this? Right? That's the consideration that we make. We come joyfully to the table because if, if we have been made to see, it is a gift of grace. Right? We, we celebrate. We come sorrowful, right? recognizing that, that this, this meal that we enjoy, representative of Christ's broken body and his spilled blood, while the greatest display of love that you and I can imagine also paints this incredibly clear picture of our depravity. And so we come with with broken hearts, we come with joyful hearts, and we come with hearts that desire today to respond appropriately to God's word. Let's continue to worship him as we pray, come to the table, and then offer our voices in song. Thank you.